he throws a blue jay up on the screen. And I literally was in class and I was like, what is that? And everybody looked at me and was like, a blue jay? <laughs> I had never, I had never in my life, because I'm like, that's a parrot is what that is to me when I look at that. You know what I'm saying? All those shades of blue, the white, the black, like, I'm like, that, that bird can't be out here. Immediately after that class, Shelby, I went outside and they were everywhere. And that's what I realized. Simply me not being educated and not knowing has shielded me from seeing all of this incredible diversity. And I have been chasing birds ever since. Bird watching? I didn't get it at first. When I thought of bird watching, I pictured old dudes dressed in khaki vests, zip off pants and wide brim hats with some binoculars dangling from their necks, standing still and quiet on the side of the trail. But Karina Newsom, she's shown me a whole different perspective. Karina's a 27 year old black woman from Pennsylvania with a master's degree in ornithology, which is the study of birds. She also has a ton of style. She's not the type to wear khaki vests in the field. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Karina has been featured in National Geographic and The New Yorker magazine. She's written articles for the National Audubon Society, and she acts as the community outreach manager for Georgia Audubon. She started birdwatching in her early 20s, and she's always been an advocate for diversifying the field. I mean, birds are diverse. The people studying them should be too. That's why Karina was one of the main organizers behind Black Birders Week, a virtual event that connected Black people who are interested in bird watching. Black Birders Week was such a success that the team already has plans for another event later this year, hopefully in person. But before we dive into how Black Birders Week came about, I wanted to know exactly how a girl from Philly fell in love with birds. How did you get into the outdoors growing up in Philly? Yeah, like I I think like TV and and books and and magazines are really like my window to the outside natural world. I so Philadelphia compared to most cities has probably more trees than like somewhere like Manhattan in New York City, right? Um but it's pretty manicured in most places and it's it's not like a natural space and so I I wasn't exposed to very much wildlife and I didn't know any like wildlife professionals who could really inform me about like native native wildlife and native plants or anything like that. So all of my information was really coming from my National Geographic magazines and Zambumafu and the crocodile hunter, right? Um, so that's kind of how I ended up getting into it. And my mom and my grandma, my dad before he passed, like very much nurtured that. Like even though I was wasn't really outside exploring so much, like they were always giving me books and my mom would Every now and then she would take me and my sister because we didn't have a car for most of our um, childhood. She would take us on the bus and she would drive us out to the suburbs, out to oftentimes private lands. And they just like, you know, we were walking around on people's forested areas and, and people's horse stables. In retrospect, it's like, oh, but we did it. She took us out every now and then to, to kind of get out of the city. Um, but generally speaking, I didn't do a whole lot of like outdoor exploration where I lived. But that's cool that your mom did that for you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, she was very, she, yeah, she loved nature. She didn't really know a whole lot about it necessarily, but she loved, loves nature. As a woman growing up, I didn't even know there was an option to study science. Like no one around me studied science. So how did you get interested in science? 
I I also didn't know any scientists personally at all. And I the, the, the scientists that I saw on TV were all white men, like Bill Nye the Science Guy. Again, like I said, Crocodile Hunter. They were all white men. But my mom, thankfully, was incredibly empowering and very much encouraged me to follow science. And so, like, I would get so many books, so, so many books about science, about the natural world. So had it not been for her... Like what I had been seeing would definitely have overwhelmed what I thought was possible. But she really encouraged me. Where the rubber really met the road was that even though I loved wildlife, I could not conceptualize. Like I could, I could conceptualize like a veterinarian, right? So like I'm like, okay, people who like animals are veterinarians. And that's all I'm really exposed to, all that I really know exists. But when it comes to like wildlife experts, that's kind of really where it hit me that that's like a white man thing. But it wasn't like conscious. And it wasn't until I was actually about to go to college and I was making choices about my career path and I saw a black woman zookeeper and I was like, wait a second. I never even imagined that I could do something like this. And I was like, the 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 way that me just seeing this black woman do this work has shifted everything for me. That is the moment I realized how powerful the images I had seen my whole life were. Okay, so as a kid, you must have been like a straight A student and a go getter. I was. Yeah, I could tell. You're just you just seem like you crushed it. And you, you went for it and you read books in readers are leaders. So that's good for your mom for encouraging that. But the zookeeper, where was the zoo? Yeah, so the way it happened was like I so the moment I decided I'm gonna be a veterinarian, I started volunteering at my local animal hospital at the age of thirteen till I was seventeen years old. Like I was like, I'm doing this. And then on my fifth year of volunteering, I passed out in the middle of surgery. I had seen dozens and dozens of surgeries, but it just hit me one day, like I can't look at this anymore. And so I was panicked because it was my senior year in high school and I'm like, I had a plan, like I'm gonna go to vet school and now I can't look at blood. And so it sent ripples throughout the universe and people heard about like my my, cha- my chaotic like state of being because of that. And so someone from my church actually was like, hey, my sister works at the Philadelphia Zoo. Here's her number. I'm going to tell her to give you a call. And I was wow. like, so literally, Shelby, it's so bad because my response to him, instead of being excited, I was I had an attitude. So I was like, in my head, I was like, she, if she's black, like she probably works in concessions and she can't help me. That's literally what I thought. Again, a manifestation of what I had seen and thought black people did when it came to wildlife. And so I literally called her. Thank God she didn't answer that at that time. I called her um, phone. I left a voicemail with a palpable attitude. Hi, this is Karina. Um, I heard that you work at the zoo, so you can give me a call back. Bye. Like that bad. It was horrible. I remember it vividly. She calls me back. Turns out she was the lead carnivore keeper at the zoo. And I was like, so embarrassed, A, and B, like just mind blown that a black woman was doing that. And so that was the moment that I told you about Shelby, where I was like, wait, like this whole time, like I didn't even, I couldn't even conceptualize that she would be doing something like that or that I could do something like that. So the carnivore keeper is the one who keeps like the, the cats, the tigers, the lions. Mm-hmm, yep. Giant river otters. Yeah, that's, that was actually the species that, that, that hooked me. But yeah, all kinds of stuff. Wait, what was the species that hooked you? Giant river otters. They're six foot long otters that live in the Amazon and they are like the most dynamic, charismatic species on this planet. Yeah. So you, you interned at the Philadelphia Zoo. Yes. You took this internship. So she actually ended up getting me an internship and she's the reason why I ever entered the field of wildlife science because she hooked me up. I had no experience with 
education or like conservation stuff. I knew nothing about that um, except for what I had read in books. I had no experience. My first internship ever in the field of wildlife conservation was um, an environmental education and animal behavior internship. So my time was spent um, educating the public about the animals that they were seeing at the zoo and their conservation plights. And then also like participating in behavior studies where I would stand at exhibits and be tracking certain behaviors you know, for for different research projects. And that changed my life. (laughs) After spending her time observing giant river otters, Karina had a plan. She was going to go to school and major in zoology, specialize in marine biology, and then make her way down the Amazon where those river otters live. But in her undergraduate program in zoo and wildlife biology, Her plan took an unexpected turn. So how does this segue into birds? So in my undergrad degree, like for zoology, old zoo and wildlife biology, um, one of the required classes is called ornithology, which is the study of birds. And I had heard from like older students that you had to memorize like almost 200 birds by sight and like 50 or 70 by sound. And I was like, I didn't even know that there was 150 birds in North America to learn. And I assumed they all looked the same and sounded the same. And I was like, this is going to be the first class that I fail. So I get to the class just already expecting the worst. And my professor was so excited. Like before he even started talking about anything, he was just, there was just an energy on him about birds. And I'm like, like, it was just weird. I was like, why are you so excited? Because I'd had him for other classes and he never was like this. He gets to talk, and ornithology was his specialty, though. He gets to talking about birds, and he's introducing us to, like, some of the more common species. I went to school in Northeast Ohio. He throws a blue jay up on the screen, and I literally was in class, and I was like, what is that? And everybody looked at me and was like, a blue jay? <laughs> I'm like, that, that bird can't be out here. Immediately after that class, Shelby, I went outside, and they were everywhere. And that's what I realized. Simply me not being educated and not knowing has shielded me from seeing all of this incredible diversity. And I have been chasing birds ever since. I feel like you need a tattoo of the Blue Jay somewhere on your body. I am. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's like my first tattoo that I'm getting when this pandemic is over is a Blue Jay feather. A lot of people are like, birding? You tell me what birding is. I would love to hear it from you. Listen, I think birding, I really think anywhere you go, but even like in North America, birds, if you just learn about who's out there, you can see such a wide diversity of birds standing still outside, even in the middle of a city. Birding is essentially the celebration of diversity of birds. And the reason why it's become, it is absolutely exploded in the U.S. and around the world, the, the, the activity of birding, simply because of how accessible it is. And you can be, you know, the really hardcore, got all the, you know, 10 cameras, four binoculars and all this other stuff. You can be that person or you can have absolutely nothing and just hear the birds and see the birds in, you know, viewable distance, and you will have a blast. It's like a treasure hunt that never ends. You will never see all the birds. There are people whose goal is to see every bird on the planet, but you will never see all the birds. Not only will you never see all the birds, you will never know everything about birds. They're just like an endless, the best kind of pit of wonder. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you never know what you're going to see. Every time you find one, it's like a surprise, right? You never know it's going to be around the corner. And then on top of that, Birds biologically are just like the most miraculous things. Like think about like a hummingbird, right? They're about the size of like a bug, basically. They weigh as much, I think it's like a nickel. These little things 
will fly across the Gulf of Mexico, which is a 22-hour nonstop flight. And you know their little wing, like they don't soar. These are not birds that can just like glide over the water. They are flapping constantly. And it's like, and then you see a, a hummingbird just like appear outside your window. And if you don't know about what that hummingbird can do, it, it may not spark that much interest. It's like, oh, it's a pretty bird. But when you think about the fact that, that bird showed up in your yard after flying 22 hours over open water, that hits different. You know what I'm saying? And birding is basically the act of learning as much as you can about species and seeing as many species as you can. And it really just, it's the most like hope-giving, exciting, unifying even activity. And it literally, like, I feel like I'm going to tear up thinking about it. If the National Bird Association doesn't hire you to be their spokesperson, like they are absolutely crazy. You just made birding sound more exciting than surfing, than sex, and pretty much anything. This is awesome. So besides the blue jay, do you have a favorite bird? So blue jay is my all-time favorite, both because out of loyalty and they're just like incredibly smart. Like they're real quick. They're in a family called Corvidae, which is blue jays, crows, magpies, ravens, and they are just incredible problem solvers. So they're always going to be the favorite. Under that, I would have to say, like, I have favorite different kinds of birds, like my favorite hawk, my favorite woodpecker, you know, warbler, whatever. But I think the pileated woodpecker, which is the largest woodpecker in North America, about the size of a crow, a flaming red, like, crest on its head, super loud bird, would be, like, my second favorite because I had a very emotional experience looking for this bird. And so like it holds a special place in my heart. So I would say blue jay first, pileated woodpecker second. Karina fell in love with learning about birds like the blue jay and the pileated woodpecker. When it came to actually going out birding, though, she didn't always feel like she fit in. As a black woman outdoors, Karina often felt uncomfortable or even unsafe at times. But she loved birding so much, Karina knew she had to get out there anyway. I love that you said birding is like a treasure hunt. You've made it sound so exciting and you've changed what a birder looks like to me. And that's, that's actually important to me because one of the things that like kind of deterred me, deterred me from like wanting to join these really joyful groups of birders was that, well, first of all, they were all like older and white and I'm like young and black. And I was like, I am different in every possible way from these people. And like they had money and they're like, oh, let's go here and here. I'm like, I don't know if I have gas to get there. You know, I don't know. You know what I mean? Just like everything. Right. Um, and then they were wearing all these like pla- khaki neutral colors. I'm just like, I don't, that's ugly to me. I don't want to wear that. Right. So I, I would show up with my hoops and like my, not that I'm super fashionable, but like, you know, like how I would normally dress out in the street. And at first I was very self-conscious and I was worried because by this point I was like, I was educated about birds and I even studied birds um, in grad school. And I was like, they're not going to believe that I'm any, have any sort of expertise or they're not going to trust that I'm actually educated about this because of how I look. And then I was like, you know what? No, like we need to change what we think the experts look like and who the people who enjoy this activity look like. And so I continue to wear my hoops when I go birding um, and everything that I would normally wear. And I will and I will always do that. So <laughs> but let's talk about this. So like there was a New Yorker article that came out about you, which was beautifully written. But you talk about how different it is to be in nature as a black woman. And I'd really love for you to kind of dive into that and how that impacts not only your research, but the habit of birding. 
I mean, this is 2021. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of like, I guess, axes on which my blackness intersects with my experience outside. So when it comes to like what makes it challenging, I think that there's actually an element of more than like a a fear of safety, right? Because I'm in South Georgia, I'm from Pennsylvania. So there's a lot of just like assumptions that I have about the place where I am. But more than any fear, there's this like feeling of guilt, especially right now, because it's like, I'm a black woman and I'm someone who thinks very deeply and critically about, as most all black people do, about, you know, the issues facing black people and indigenous people, people of color, people from marginalized groups in, in many capacities in this country. And it's like, I'm out here looking for birds as my job. And one thing that I had mentioned in the article that you referenced was like this past summer was my, so it was my last field season for my graduate school work. I had two summer seasons down in South Georgia on the coast like right before my field season, Ahmad Arbery was shot down, literally down the street from my field site along the, same, the edge of the same marsh that I study for my seaside sparrow work. But I didn't even know about it, right? It didn't even hit the press until two months after the fact, which was all part of how, how awful and, and unjust this whole situation was. But I found out and I was like, I'm out here literally just like looking for seaside sparrow nests, admiring the roseate spoonbills and, and the great egrets flying over me, just having a blast, enjoying the scenery, right? And literally, I can see the place where this black man was shot for being black. And, and I was like, what am I doing here? Why am I out here? Like, there's so much urgent life and death situation issues that need to be addressed. And I'm out here with the birds. And so like this overwhelming sense of guilt. And even again, yesterday, right, when we saw this insurrection, this this terrorism in, on Capitol Hill that basically reminded us of how starkly different the lives of white people and the lives of black people are valued in this country, right? It's like, I'm sitting here spending time arranging, planning birding trips in Georgia. And like, meanwhile, people are dying to protest for their lives, right? So uh, the, 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 the emotional experience that I have as a black woman in this space is that Black people don't have the luxury to do this. But what I have to remind myself and what a lot of people have been reminding me is that black people actually have a space, like have a place in the story of the natural world, even in North America. Right. I was never taught about the history of black people in the outdoors. The only history that I know about is like black people being killed and murdered, which is why my whole family is constantly petrified for my for my safety. And they keep sending me things like knives and other weapons. That's the only narrative that I have about Black people in this space. But what I'm learning as I'm like meeting new new Black people, other Black people who are in this same work, and I've been learning like, wow, there is more to the story of Black people in this space. And we actually do belong here. It's part of our joy. It's part of our healing. It's part of our existence. It's not something that's like a distraction from what matters. Like we belong here too. And so I've I constantly have to reframe how I think about my work. Um, of course, everything that I do, even when it's about science, is centering the perspectives of people from these historically oppressed groups, Black people, Indigenous people, people of color, LGBTQIA, people with disabilities, right? Like centering those perspectives and decentering those who have been at the nexus of power and wealth. Um, and that's important work that needs to be done. And so I, I constantly have to be reaffirmed by myself and by other, you know, people, Black people in this space. But... That's really, I think, the most profound way that being a Black woman has impacted my experience in the outdoors. Luckily, Karina found a community of other Black naturalists and scientists via Twitter. 
They formed a group chat called Black AF in STEM with over 100 members. When we come back, hear Karina talk about how the group mobilized after a fellow birdwatcher was at the center of a racist encounter last summer. For a lot of you, the weather is currently wet, icy, and snowy, or all of the above, which is why owning a good pair of winter boots is so important. That's where Danner's Mountain Pass Arctic Night Boot comes in. This boot not only has the classic Danner look, it's made in their Portland, Oregon factory after all, can't get more classic than that, but it'll also keep your feet nice and warm with the breathable Gore-Tex lining and thin insulation. No slush and snow leaking through these shoes. And because slipping on surprise ice is the worst, these boots have a Vibram Arctic Grip outsole, which is super helpful in keeping your feet securely on the ground during these dark, cold winter months. You can shop Danner at Danner.com and find more details on the Mountain Pass Arctic Night Boots in the show notes. On Memorial Day last year, fellow black birder Christian Cooper was out birdwatching in New York City when he was harassed in Central Park by a white woman. After Cooper asked the woman to leash her dog as they were in an on-leash area of the park, the woman called the cops. She falsely claimed that Cooper was harassing her and that she feared for her life. Cooper filmed the interaction on his phone and the video went viral. On that same day, George Floyd was killed by police officers in Minnesota. His murder was the catalyst for the nationwide Black Lives Matter protests that took place last summer. The incident with Christian Cooper hit Karina's community close to home. People in the Black AF and STEM group chat decided to organize. Talk to me about Black Burger Week. How did it start and what was the result? How did you get involved? It sounds so cool and I've heard about it. So obviously it caught national attention. Yeah, it was. So it was really unexpected and for the most part unplanned. So it was basically it was just like any average day for black people in the U.S. And in New York City, Christian Cooper, who is a, a black man and a birder on the board of New York City Audubon, just like a well-respected, well-known birder. This situation happened with to Christian Cooper, where this woman, white woman, Amy Cooper, no relation, called the cops on him because she was he was telling her to leash her dog up because she was letting him run around in a wildlife area and called the cops and, you know, lied on him, said he was threatening her life and her dog's life. Right. And he caught it on camera. He sent it to his sister and his sister was the one who posted it like he would I don't think would have ever posted that ever. She posted it on Twitter. And of course, like we saw it right away and it was in our group chat and we're just like, what? Like and then later that day, like George Floyd was killed by the police. And it's just like. It, like the two events together were just like, this is black in America. This is this is being black while you're exploring outside. This is you being black while you're doing literally anything else. Um, you can just have someone lie on you and the cops might kill you. And so it was like, we were just like processing this. And not that, not that Christian has to be any sort of well-respected person or any sort of, you know, badass anything. Like he deserves to live and he deserves to not be harassed no matter what. But him also being this person that we knew and respected so much, like to see it happen to him was just like, sheesh man and so got in the group chat one of my friends Anna was like we need to do something to celebrate black birders and then my friend Taiki who works for for Audubon was like we should have a week for black birders and then people were like we should do this and that and like we're just throwing ideas literally just into the group chat and within a 
like two days. We had people who had made graphics. We had mapped out a whole week of engagement. We had advertised. Like I was literally just like reaching out to random press, like just like, hey, this is what we're doing. Are you interested? Like just, I mean, shooting shots, right? And then it ended up catching catching wind and like press ended up like responding and like, yeah, we'll take the story or like ended up getting national attention and international people engaged. And it was just like, I was stunned. I couldn't believe it. And the main point of it was one to celebrate and connect black birders to each other and just be like, yeah, like this is black joy while we're birding and outside and just like glory in that together. And to also kind of like uplift our experiences because a lot of times we're the only black people kind of like I mentioned before, the only black people in our spaces Thankfully, we've connected via internet, but like physically we're alone and usually we're pretty shut down. So whenever we bring up these issues of, you know, uh, of race and, and, and white supremacy, God forbid, or any of these things, like social issues, we're shut down until we're being political. So we never really get have gotten very far in our spaces. But together we can do that. We can like override the barrier. You know what I'm saying? So to, to kind of uplift our stories and highlight that this is not a, an isolated incident. None of them are. And then also to celebrate diversity. Right. Like I said earlier, like birding is literally the celebration of diversity, but all y'all are white. <laughs> like, how did that happen, right? And it's like, you have no interest in changing that. Like, it's like you're perfectly content to go chasing birds around the country and world with your all-white group of friends, all the same age, all same socioeconomic status, and you are comfortable. You shouldn't be comfortable. So kind of just highlighting why our love for diversity should expand beyond birds and to the people who are looking at them too. So Black Birder Week, I mean, it's really cool to hear that you were so involved with it. So what were the goals of it and what was the turnout like and when was it? I feel like it was in June. Yeah. So it was the first week in June, like May 31st to June 6th. Um, and so the goals that I had like just out mentioned, those three goals of, you know, celebrating blackness in the outdoors, uplifting black stories and communicating the importance of diversity. Those were the three goals of Black Birders Week. And the the reaction or the response was so beyond what I could have ever imagined, right? So, like, I was just happy to have a, a group chat of Black people who liked the outdoors. I was like, I've reached the mountaintop. That's as much as I'll get. Like, I just knew, I was like, I this is, I love this. You know, this is enough. And then Black Birders Week hit, and it was like, wait, there are so many more of us than I could have ever imagined. From all, you know, Black people, young, older, from the city, from the sticks, like, everything in between. It was like so many black people were enjoying this activity that I never would have imagined. Right. And it was just like, I remember the first day of black birders week, which I think was like black and hashtag black in nature. And just people just sharing images of themselves being black AF in nature. Right. And I was just sitting on my bed, like scrolling through these pictures, just weeping. I was like, I, I don't see this. I don't see, I don't ever see this, you know? So yeah, I was absolutely stunned. And to, to hear stories from people, like there's Dudley Edmondson, who's a, a well-known black naturalist and birder and photographer. He had tweeted and was like, like during Black Birders Weekend, was like, I never, in my 40 years of birding, I never thought I would get to see other people who looked like me. And I, oh, I was undone, right? And then there was one young woman, a Muslim young woman who wears a hijab and she's a biology teacher and she does bird banding. And there was another woman who was participating who also was a Muslim woman with a hijab. And they they had both like posted pictures holding birds. And they both were like, I've never seen a woman in a hijab doing bird science in my life. And like, they, it was just like a, people having the opportunity to see themselves for the first time was just the most powerful outcome to me um, of all of Black Birders Week. It's so cool. And it was an online movement. But was there any physical gatherings? No. No physical gathering wow. at all. All online. Yep. All online. That's so powerful. I, I can't wait for the time 
COVID is over and you can actually have like this physical Blackbird conference. Uh huh. We're actually we're planning. There are some plans in the work for something like that, uh, COVID willing, uh, later this year. So we'll. We'll see all that. Y'all, y'all hear about it. If, it. if it's able to happen and we got vaccines and stuff, y'all definitely know about it. <laughs> Have you seen an increase in birding because of Black Birders Week? I would say that there is an increase in... It's like I, I've i been isolated even since Black Birders Week, right? So like I've not been around to see anything in real life, or I should say real life, in my physical surroundings. But I have seen an influx of of young people who are, you know, maybe had a curiosity but never really entered into birding, start birding. And there was even like a whole fundraiser to buy binoculars for black people who want to go birding. And so like a whole, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of black people got binoculars and now go birding. You know what I'm saying? So like there, there were some very tangible kind of outcomes when it comes to like people's interest in and ability to go outside and explore. So yeah, there, there has definitely been an increase in people who are able to go and look at the birds. <laughs> Black Birders Week was a phenomenal success, with five days of live-streamed panels, events, and over one and a half million viewers. Now, Black AF and STEM isn't just a small group chat, it's become a social media movement aimed at building a community. Getting people involved in birding is such a huge part of Karina's personal mission. From helping to organize Black Birders Week, to her new job as the Community Engagement Manager for Georgia Audubon, Karina's goal is to study these awesome animals and to center conservation and equity in the birding community. Hearing Karina talk about her love for this work, it's inspiring. Her energy and passion is absolutely infectious. No one has ever gotten me as excited about birds the way Karina has. So birding itself seems like you know, an easier activity than let's say like rock climbing or going surfing or biking or even camping because it doesn't seem like you need much equipment, but, but what do you recommend if someone wants to start birding? Like what do they need to get started? So you don't really need anything, right? Like I mentioned, you can stand outside and detect birds just, you know, with the naked eye or with your ears, um, listening to their songs and calls. But if you really want to get into learning about the birds that you are seeing and hearing outside, um, there are a couple, a couple different things you can do, some tools that are more accessible than others. So if you have a smartphone, there are apps you can download that are free. Um, the Merlin Bird ID app is the most robust. Like it's a lot, it's a lot of data. It takes up a lot of space in your phone, but it's so much information about the birds you're seeing. And it's very user friendly. It walks you through. So if you see a bird, it'll walk you through, okay, what color, what shape, where are you? And kind of narrow it down for you. Um, another app that does this, but it does not take up nearly as much space is the Audubon app, which I also use because my poor phone hardly has enough space to function. So I have the Audubon app on my phone. And again, same thing. It GPS is where you are. Okay, these are the birds in your area. What colors are you seeing? I'm seeing brown, black. It's this shape and about this big. You enter that in and it pulls up some options with pictures and you can say, oh yeah, that's it. And when you click on the bird, it's going to tell you all about the bird. So like literally from your phone, if you have a smartphone, you can download the Audubon app and get identification and information about the species all in one spot. Um, if you are, yeah, if you're interested in, in optics, so like being able to increase the birds that you can see when you're outside, um, you can have, you know, there are binoculars that cost thousands of dollars, right? And then there are binoculars that cost like, you know, 50 to $80. And there are some binoculars that I would say around $80 are probably the best 
kind of deal for the for the quality. And so if you go to, I believe, Bushnell um, is the is the brand. Bushnell's got some waterproof or maybe water resistant binoculars for about eighty dollars. If you can afford that, I would recommend it um, because it will completely open your world up, and you'll be able to see things you never thought might would ever have been there. Um, and so you can use that along with your free app on your phone. Um, you can also get a, a hard you know hard copy field guide like the like the you know the the OG writers, and I always keep one on me too because I like just having the physical pages and turning through and writing notes and all that. I'm hardcore, you know what I'm saying? So, I imagine birding requires a level of like patience and quiet that some people like me might not always have. Any advice on how to get into the mindset while birding? The patience thing, that's hard. It might not take as much patience as you think, right? Like when you picture birding, you picture someone standing in silence among, you know, trees or something. But in most places, if you've got a tr- some trees around or even some grass or whatever, you walk outside, there's a bird waiting for you likely somewhere. You know what I mean? What it really takes, I think, is being still enough to notice. So it's not that you have to wait so long for a bird to appear as much as it is you have to stop moving. So what I would recommend is when you go outside, get in the habit of being very still so that you can detect movement. Because that's, that's the first step. So when I'm outside, even if I have my binoculars and all my stuff, the first thing, the first way that I find a bird is by standing still so that I can see what's moving. And then, boom, pull the binoculars up. And there's always something, I mean, pretty immediately. But um, it's a really good habit to get in the practice of just, like, being still and kind of silencing your mind. So not only does it allow you to, like, see birds, but it, like, is a good practice for your soul, I think. It's a good practice for your mind. Um, And so I would recommend just practicing that stillness because it it allows so many things to pop out in the world around you. That you, It's like when I'm moving around, a bird that could be right in front of me, I won't even see because it's like I'm, I'm doing too much. I'm doing the most. So just be still when you're outside. Give it 30 seconds. Of being still. Which is so cool because I'm talking to you and you are so animated. Like you are moving while we are talking, but yet you're a birder. So is birding really meditative for you because it kind of forces you to sort of be more still? Absolutely. Like I, I think birding has saved me in, in many ways because like I move a lot. I'm high energy. My mind is always racing and I feel like I can't escape it, which can be, you know, somewhat frustrating. Um, and so it really helps me because it forces me to focus on something that's not the racing thoughts in my mind and not the next thing I have on my schedule and not whatever else is stressing me, but I have something that I'm focusing on. So it's not just like empty silence and empty space. It's like, I'm still, I'm, I'm relaxing my mind, but it's for the purpose of detecting something. So I'm focused at the same time. Um, and it, it is just so, it's incredibly meditative. It's incredibly healing. And so one of the reasons why it's important that black people are here is because, yes, there's a lot of trauma that it's associated with being black and being exposed to the system that we live in. But the outside is a place to heal, very much so, for anyone. You know what I'm saying? For, for whatever stressors a person experiences, birds have a very unique way of, of lifting burdens. So I, I highly recommend Thank you so much to Karina for coming on the show and sharing your passion and the story of Black Birders Week and getting me personally so excited about birds. Your work has connected your fellow Black Birders to a larger community and it's inspired so many more people to get out there and try something new. 
I personally can't stop trying to identify every single bird outside my window. I've even ordered one of those bird books and I'm getting some binoculars. So I'm one of those people now. I can't wait to watch Black Birders Week grow and expand over the coming years. To find out more about Black Birders Week 2021, check out at BlackAFInSTEM on Instagram. You can also follow Karina on her Instagram at hood underscore underscore naturalist. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler, and produced by Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we appreciate when you subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you listen. We read every single one of those reviews. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.